You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Luke 6, verses 46 down to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, if you haven't met me before, my name is Coy. I'm the associate pastor here. It's so good to see you all on this uh, lovely Sunday. And, you know, uh, there was a time where I studied in Calgary, Canada, uh, and when I was living there, I I lived in a basement, uh, and I noticed that most houses in this city, in Calgary, have a basement. And a big reason for that was because the temperatures there were so low. Like I'm talking, it was usually when I was living there, usually around minus 10 degrees Celsius. Sometimes it would have hit minus 30 plus. So houses needed to have a foundation below what is called the frost line. Frost line. A frost line is basically where the ground and soil freezes. And so anything below that frost line is, is, is not frozen, essentially. So the lower the house and its foundations, the better. Because if the foundation was the foundation of a house or a building was above the frost line, when the ground freezes and there's no sturdy foundation below that line, a lot of problems would arise. You know, the ground could expand or move and crack the foundation of your house. Actually, some people who didn't have basements living in a city as Calgary every winter had to have their pipes, their, their pipes would freeze under their house. And so they have to crawl under their house every winter with a blowtorch to try and thaw out like their pipes under their house just so that they could use water. Like I struggle to thaw fish probably. Imagine having to climb under your house to thaw pipes. But you just see just how important the foundation is for a building. That even other countries have elements that you have to take note of when it comes to foundation that we've probably never even heard of or thought about. See, today as we close our January Parables of Jesus series, I wanted to focus on this well-known parable from Jesus of the builders who built their house on these two different foundations. And what's interesting about the parable of the builders is that almost always people will understand the moral of Jesus' teaching here was to build a life upon him, to make Jesus the foundation of your life, that he is the rock you know, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is a sure foundation to build our lives on, which is absolutely true. But did you know what's interesting is that there are actually two versions of this parable. There is the parable of the two builders in the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we just heard from the kids talk. But we also have one that we're in today in our passage in the Gospel of Luke. 
And there are a few small differences between the two, such as the sermon in Matthew, it was more directed as Jews as he was speaking to many, while the sermon in Luke, our passage today, he was speaking more to Gentiles. Yet commentators have agreed that there is overlap between these two building uh, parables. Because if you read the parables side by side in Matthew 7 and our passage today in Luke, they almost sound identical. And by reading them both, you can understand the, the meaning to be Jesus telling his listeners to build their lives upon him. That a wise person has Jesus as the foundation of their life. And again, as I say, that is true, absolutely true, and something that the parable of Matthew makes clear. But Luke's version, the passage that we're looking at today, I think Jesus has a slightly different meaning to the one in Matthew. That both parables have a different moral to the story. Because as we look at our passage today, what we'll notice is that Jesus' emphasis here is on the listener's faith responses. It's as past Ridley College uh, principal Leon Morris says, in Matthew, the difference between the two men is that they chose different sites on which to build. Here in Luke, they're different in what they do on the sites. In other words, in Matthew, it's about where one builds while our passage today in Luke is about how one builds. Do we build with or without a foundation? So as we take a deep, deeper look into Jesus' parable here in the Gospel of Luke, what we'll see are four faith responses to Jesus, responses that help us see how one builds their life as a Christian, with the first response being, those calling him Lord. Now, I recently Googled famous celebrities who are Christian, and it came up with a wide range of people, from actor Tom Hanks, who was described as growing up Mormon, and his same faith in God has remained, to actress, our very own Nicole Kidman, who she descri- describes herself as a Christian, and she is a devout Roman Catholic, to Nick Jonas, So you old people, he's from the Jonas Brothers, one of the greatest bands of all time. So the young people of the Jonas Brothers, Nick Jonas, one of them who identifies as a Christian, but he married a Hindu wife. And his exact words were, I'm excited for our child because I'm going to raise him up with both Christian and Hindu values and principles. Not exactly a strong list of Christians there, is it? And that shouldn't be all too surprising for us because we look all around us today and we see that the term Christian has lost its significance. We look at Christians today and we see that those identified as such can be put under this massive umbrella. And I even think about the Australian census not long ago in my time where Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics were all classed under the same checkbox when marking your religion, Christian. Even though each of these religions would say they are starkly different to each other. And even then, I remember talking to friends who I knew were not Christian in any sense, yet because they would say their parents, you know, used to take them to church sometimes and they would always check that box Christian on the census because that was the only thing that they could identify, even though they hadn't been to church in years. So you may have heard the term nominal Christian before, which is basically those who are Christian by name only. They may go to church, may have Christian friends, but Christ has no bearing in their lives. It's essentially just a label. Their life doesn't match up with how they identify. And this is who Jesus 
pinpointed first in his parable. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? See, there were plenty of people who were sitting down listening to the teachings of Jesus at this moment on this mount. And a lot of those who had flocked to him and would even identify as his disciples. Plenty of those that were there in the crowd who would confidently profess that they were his followers. And yet Jesus knew that there were so many of them who were just only nominal followers. Those who called him Lord and would identify as his believers, yet Jesus had no real bearing in their lives. And the reality is, this is clearly still evident today, where there are countless people around the world coming to church on Sunday to listen to the teachings of Jesus in his word. A lot who are flocking to mega or local churches who would identify as his disciples. Plenty who would confidently profess that they are his followers. And yet Jesus knows that for so many, they are only nominal Christians. Those who would call him Lord and who would identify as his believers. Yet Jesus has no real bearing in their lives. Says so as author James R. Edwards says, of the four faith responses, the first, which is to call yourself a follower, ironically, is the least trustworthy. For it is easy to say things, even true things, such as Jesus is Lord, and not mean or do them. And we think about this especially today, where we live in a time where people like to identify as all sorts of things, even if it isn't remotely true or what they actually are. And yet for an even longer time, over 2,000 years ago, Christians were already doing this, which is quite revealing and hard-hitting, isn't it? Because elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus has spoken about those who call themselves his followers yet actually aren't. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus reveals that word service or labeling, labeling yourself one doesn't equal genuine discipleship. It really is the least trustworthy of the faith responses. And so what's the answer? Well, I think it's the next three qualities that lay the foundation to genuine discipleship. The three faith responses that Jesus says in his parable in verse 47, those who come to him, those who hear him, and those who do his will. See, as James R. Elwood says, these three responses connote habitual behaviours that lay claim to the whole person, the relational, the verbal, and the behavioural, and in that order. And so first, we have the relational response to faith in Jesus, which is to those who come to him. See, theologian R. Kent Hughes says, true discipleship must always begin with coming to Christ. In other words, Going to Jesus is what it means to be an authentic Christian. Because as the Bible tells us, God in his grace came to us first to bring us out of the depths of our sin. This is the big story of the Bible. What started in the Garden of Eden as read in Genesis, where humanity sinned against our creator, causing a distance between us sinners and a good and righteous God. And yet God didn't leave us in our despair. But he came to us 
with Jesus coming down into the brokenness, our brokenness to redeem us, dying on the cross, paying for the consequences of our transgressions, forgiving us of our sin. We have been made righteous because of Christ's righteousness, choosing us to be his people. You know, Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, that is the gospel story, the good news that makes a Christian a Christian, that Jesus came to us, he died for us, and was raised to life so that we could have new life. And so naturally, after God saves us and calls us his own, does it mean that we then cut him off and then leave him? Of, of course not. It's here on out. If you're a Christian, it's, that's, it's here on out that you're supposed to go to him even more. You know, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, authentic Christianity means going to Jesus daily. We go to him because in loving him and being one of his followers, we understand that we actually need him. Hebrews 4 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, every day we wake, our flesh is weak and prone to sin, so we need to come to him. Every day we're hit with a situation or a circumstance that we need help, so we need to come to him. In fact, if we're a believer and if if we're a believer, he should be and ought to be our greatest joy. So we should be coming to him. We look at the true disciples who were with Jesus, not the ones who were sitting there listening to the parable on the mount as nominal followers, but Jesus' actual disciples who were chosen by him. Yet after being chosen, they followed him day and night. See, as his disciples, they proactively came to Jesus daily. They didn't just go around telling the townspeople, you know, oh, we're one of Jesus' disciples, and then they would just go off and just live their own life and never interact with Jesus. They literally followed him everywhere, wanted to be in a relationship with Jesus. So they were always coming to him, seeking him, following him, wanting to be discipled by him. And so while we as disciples today, if you're a Christian here, may not have the physical Jesus to literally follow like the disciples did in Israel. He has given us all that we need to come to him. Because as we see, he has given us his word, which is the Bible. He's given us his ear in prayer and he's given us his body, the church. See, in going to the Bible to read and to meditate on what we, on, on when we are coming to him to feed on the very words of God, it says, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In prayer, we are literally coming to God to talk to him, to praise him, to bring our requests to him, to trust him. In Jeremiah 29, verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. See, these two often make the make up personal devotion in a Christian's life, as we know, bedrocks of our coming to Jesus daily. But it's in the church that we get to come to him to do these things with others and get to live out our discipleship with other believers in the body of Christ. 
because we see in God's word a great emphasis on corporately gathering together like we are today. Colossians 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of God Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, I remember speaking last year to somebody from our church here who had a horrendous week. One of those weeks where everything that could go wrong went wrong in every aspect of her life. You know, work had major issues. At home, there was tension and trouble in her family. Past issues had crept up back into her life. It was one of the worst weeks that she's ever had in her life. And I remember her telling me how tempted she was to not come to church that Sunday. She wanted to skip it and seclude herself from everything and everyone. And she kept saying the pull was so strong. But she prayed and God gave her the strength to get up and go that Sunday morning. And she told me after the service that she thanks God so much for doing that because she had countless people that day pray for her. She had countless people speak to her and shower God's love upon her that she could really see and feel God's presence and a real sense of God's peace being with God's people. See, the Bible tells us that God loves fellowship and made and has made us made us for it. And he has given us the church as a wonderful way of coming to him. God wants us to gather together as a people, enabling us to worship him as a body. It's as author I. Kent Hughes says, today the church's preaching of the word supplies the setting of coming to God. And a person can approach Christ when he attends corporate worship with Christ's body and he hears his word preached. There are no churchless disciples. That's why when, when, uh, that's why when those who remain in digital church or label themselves Christians but don't ach- attend church in any capacity often struggle in their faith. Because our faith is never meant to be done alone. But when we come to God together, it's often that we see God's glory and his presence in the flesh. And so coming to God is essential to what it means to be a Christian. It's a mark of genuine discipleship. But perhaps more importantly, what coming to him does is enable believers to hear his words which is the next important faith response. Those who hear him. See, I often listen to City on a Hill Melbourne West playlist on Spotify. You know, it has certified bangers on there. Would recommend if you haven't subscribed to that on Spotify. It's just a great playlist of the songs that we sing on Sundays and all, all sorts. And I usually listen to it on my Google Home, which if you don't know, it's a small device that you can talk to. You can ask it to play music. You can ask it to ask, you can ask it the weather and all sorts of things, right? But just this week, I asked my Google Home, I was like, hey, Google, as I normally do. Hey, Google, hey, can you play City on a Hill Melbourne West playlist on Shuffle? And the device responds, sure, playing Sydney Mardi Gras playlist on Shuffle. That is not what I normally listen to. Uh, now I must say, what made it even worse is that it adds it to your Spotify most recently playlist and I can't get rid of it. So if you jumped into my car and your Spotify pops up, it would say, oh, this is what you've been listening to. Okay? And I'd be like, no, I only listen to this on the weekends, you know, but just joking. All right. But listening is so hard nowadays that even technology struggles, which makes me think that listening 
is an ability that is underrated. I say this as somebody who isn't the best at it too. You can ask my wife, right? But it's underrated because I think for the wide majority, we can hear, but the question is, are we listening? This must have been how it was for a few in the crowd. There were those in the crowd who would call themselves Jesus' followers, hearing what Jesus was teaching them, but they weren't listening. Because a follower can easily hear what is being said. You can hear the sermon on Sunday. You can hear the words from your Bible reading at home. You can hear that podcast about your Christian faith. But the question is, are you listening to what God is saying? And I love this illustration I read from one of the commentaries where it said, today church attendees to God's word are like people, uh, it's like people listen to God's word the way that people listen to a flight attendant explain the airplane safety features. Just totally tuned out. And it's a great illustration, isn't it? Because if you've flown more than once before, the safety features demonstration has got to be one of the worst jobs to do. Flight attendants are met daily with immediate rejection most of the time that they do it. As soon as, you know, they start talking and they're following the recording and doing the, uh, the features of what they're supposed to be doing, everyone starts looking down. People start looking at their devices, start looking at their newspapers. People put on their headphones. What I like to do is like, oh, they're doing the, the safety features. Now I can take my nap. You know, you just start closing your eyes. It's no surprise that I've seen flight attendants get really creative with it, right? And start doing interpretive dance and all sorts of stuff on the plane. That's because they know nobody's listening. But the thing is, many sitting in their pews on Sunday can do exactly the same thing. Many opening up their Bible plans as a checklist every morning, hoping to finish it to quickly start the day. Many who have uh, Christian podcasts on in the, for positive background noise. Listening is so important today and is a skill that has been severely impaired. See, our modern culture bombards us with an excess of words. Yet at the same time, our culture emphasizes the importance of only grabbing 10 second bites to feed you. Isn't it crazy to think that a vast majority of Christians throughout history actually listened to scripture instead of reading it? Reading only became mainstream in the 1800s, which means that hearing the Bible was the primary way for Christians to know God's word for most of time. But even then, as seen by Jesus' response to those who only call themselves Christians, but actually weren't, even they struggled that's because hearing is natural, but listening requires discipline. It requires effort. It requires intention. Like how many times can you say that you've sat in a sermon and your mind wanders off into what you need to buy at the grocery later on in the day? And then by the time you're back listening to the sermon, you've lost your place. So the sermons essentially become a write-off. I know I've done that. Or times where you're reading the Bible and your eyes are reading through it and you hear the words as you say it. But after you finish reading it, none of it remains because you weren't really listening to the words from the pages. I know I've done that. Listening to the words of God requires discipline. And I think the Bible gives us a few tips on how to be disciplined in our listening. Marked by the letter A. Here are a few that can help us. That to listen well is to be attentive. 
In Proverbs 2 verse 2 says, make your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understand. See, when it comes to hearing God's word, attentiveness is vital because to be attentive is to lift the priority of what you're being attentive to. The the temptation for us when our mind wanders is to be attentive to what we think is important to us at the time. And so being attentive to hearing God's word, whether it be a sermon or a Bible reading, requires discipline, you know, making the effort to stay focused on what you're hearing. And this might mean removing distractions, might mean no longer using your phone as your Bible as it can easily pull you away when you get notifications, might mean sitting in a different spot to avoid the temptation of chit-chat with your bestie. It might mean going someplace quiet at home and away from life to do your Bible reading. See, the Bible tells us that our heart naturally sways to sinfulness and disobedience. Jeremiah 17, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And so naturally, when we're about to hear what God has to say to us, the temptation will be for our hearts and our minds and our ears to tune out. So pray for help that you may be attentive like a good prayer to have. How many of us have prayed in the morning before coming to church, Lord, may I be attentive and open open my ears and hearts to hear your word today. Ask God for discipline and then put in the effort and intention in being attentive. Now, another way to listen well is to absorb another A. James 1 verse 19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, this verse is spoken in regards to how we ought to relate to one another, but I think it's also helpful in how we interact with God and his word because there are so many times where we may hear it either in a sermon or when we're in our Bible reading and we hear something and our knee-jerk reaction is to immediately counter, immediately argue, immediately examine. But as the verse says, there is great wisdom in being quick to hear and slow to speak. That is mulling on the word that you've just heard. Absorbing what you've heard from God's word. As writer Joshua Bailey says, there is wisdom in simply taking it in. Like the slow and steady marination of our favorite meat, we immerse ourselves in the words, trusting that our heart will, in good time, absorb its full meaning. Like there is a good reason to study and go into detail, which will be the next tip. But there's also wisdom to first absorb what you're hearing, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Like especially when I'm reading a passage to preach on, my instinct is to go straight to the commentaries, to go straight to the resources, to help expand on the text. But I notice the sermons that I'm most engaged with, the ones that speak to my own life, are the ones that I actually take time to slow down and listen and absorb what God is trying to say quick to listen to God's words. So a tip when it comes to discipline, the discipline of listening, absorb what you hear. Be in the word with open ears and an open heart. And thirdly, which I alluded to just then, is to analyze. Proverbs 18 verse 2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. As I said earlier, a common struggle for us is that we can hear God's word and immediately forget it, like it can become mindless hearing, where it goes in our ears and in our minds perhaps for us and to process for a split second, and then it's gone. Which is why analyzing what you've heard, 
after absorbing it is a good way to grow in your listening. Because when we study it, it builds our understanding of it. Word by word, sentence by sentence, passage by passage, we can analyze what we hear carefully. Rereading and working out the context, we can actively investigate the meaning that we can properly come to an understanding of the wisdom God has for us. That way, believing it, having it actually change us. So as the proverb said, only a fool takes no pleasure in understanding. And so we don't just hear for the sake of hearing, but we ought to analyze that we may truly listen to God's words, drawing into the text that by the Holy Spirit's help, he may help draw something out of it for us. Like I'm encouraged by one of our gospel community leaders here at Melbourne West, who in his Bible reading, he follows a Bible reading plan for breadth. But also daily, he goes through one chapter a week separately for depth. And he tells me he looks into detail into that chapter for the week by studying it and using commentary to see it in more detail. And it's been huge for his discipleship. So be encouraged to analyse God's word in your Bible reading and from what you hear from the pulpit. One of the main reasons we have gospel communities is for that, that people can come together to analyse what they heard on Sunday, preached. They go into the detail on what they've heard from God's word, ensuring that they're not just hearing, but that they're listening. So I hope these can be helpful to you in such a discipline as listening, attentive, absorb, analyze. But there's one more A, and it's the most vital one that is central to this parable from Jesus, and that is to apply. Now, you may be wondering, man, we are well into this sermon already, and Coy hasn't even talked about the parable itself, and there's good reason for that, because Jesus lays out the different faith responses a believer can have, and they're all important. Those who call themselves a follower, those who come to him, those who hear him. But while important, the main point of this parable is that none of those responses matter if you don't do the last one, if you don't apply what you've heard which makes the last faith response the most fundamental to a believer, the faith response of those who do his will. Looking at the passage, verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So reading stories and seeing it on the news, you know, I'd imagine flooding, like flash flooding would be terrifying. That you're solely relying on the foundation under you when you're trapped in a house. You're trusting in the ground below you to hold up the entire shelter around you. Well, Jesus uses this illustration to describe the importance of a believer's faith response. As verse 47 says, those who come to him and hear his words and does them has a strong foundation, one where the house could not be shaken from the broken stream. 
It's why I said earlier that these three responses make up the marks of a genuine disciple. These make up a strong foundation in one's life as a believer, bedrocks of how one builds their life as a Christian. But see how much Jesus emphasizes the latter response. That as verse 49 says, but the one who hears and does not do them is like the man whose house, who's built a house without a foundation. And as the storms hit that house, it immediately fell and the ruin was great. The one who does not do them. The believer who does not apply what she or he has read from the word of God. The follower who does not live out what they heard from the pulpit. The Christian who does not obey what the Lord has called them to. This is the one who builds a house without a foundation. That you may call yourself a Christian, you might come to God every Sunday, might hear what is said from his word, but your faith is one built on no foundation if what you hear is not lived out. Jesus is essentially asking the question to his listeners, do you act on what you know and hear from him? And he uses an illustration that would have a deeper significance to the Jews and Gentiles in those days. Because in those days, soil in Palestine was often hard pan, which is really hardened, dense clay. Because in those days, soil, uh, because, uh, which meant people were tempted to build on the soil itself rather than invest in labor, in money, in time, in digging through such hardened ground. So many avoided it not laying down a proper foundation, but choosing to just build their building straight away onto the soil. It was the easier route. They avoided toil and they were being short-sighted, which is a perfect illustration of why we can do the same when it comes to our obedience. See, as as believers, we can often choose unwisely because we want to avoid the trouble, want to avoid the hard work, not bothered to go through the hardship of digging through the hard pan. We'd rather choose gossip than go through the hardship of confrontation and reconciliation. We'd rather live with our boyfriends or girlfriends because it makes everyday life easier. We'd rather leave it to their teacher or our spouse to invest in the faith of our kids rather than ourselves. So we'd rather choose to build on top of the soil, which is much more attractive. It's easier and much less trouble. Like I've had a moment in my ministry where I knew God's wisdom was telling me to intervene and reach out to help resolve uh, something between members. But I chose the easier path by leaving it and not involving myself as it was just much less trouble, which was quite damaging. Or like builders in those days, you know, perhaps like them, we can be short-sighted, thinking only about the now and not the future So the decisions in our lives are all made with a short view, trumping the long view. We see that that building on the soft soil means a quicker job and a ready-made house in shorter notice, disregarding what will happen in the future. Maybe we watch something that we shouldn't now and we, we can deal with it later. Maybe we spend something on this now hoping that, you know, it will be for the best later. Maybe we despise this person now and let God deal with them later. 
Jesus is telling us through his parable, build with a foundation. Hear his words and obey. Because he warns that when the flood comes, the house without a foundation will see great ruin. You know, what's the most concerning thing about this parable is that when you think of the houses, to regular people, both look the same from the ground up. Both would just be as normal as a house as the one next to it. And yet the foundation that they're on is actually unseen. It's as pastor and author J.C. Ryle says, such a person's religion may look fine for a while. An ignorant eye may detect no difference between this person and a true Christian. Both may worship in the same church. Both may use the same ordinances. Both may profess the same faith. The outward appearance of the, of the house built on the rock and the house without any solid foundation may be much the same. But as Jesus talks about the flood that comes and destroys the house that has no foundation, he is alluding to the inevitable day of his return. As 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, we, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That there will come a day of judgment where sinners past and present alike will stand in front of a holy and just God, responsible for all your actions, of what you said or didn't say, of what you heard or didn't hear, of what you did or didn't do. And only those whose name is written in the book of life will enter heaven. Whereas this parable says, those whose faith have a strong foundation will not be destroyed by the broken stream, but will stand strong. And these believers will enjoy eternity with Jesus, a strong foundation of a faith that is lived, not just professed or heard. See, because when a believer comes to Jesus and he hears his word and he, uh, he lives it out, what this reveals is a person truly changed by their saviour. A life no longer the same as before, you know, indebted to sin, but a life made new, surrendered to Christ. Second Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, Jesus saving us isn't the result of righteous living. That was completely by his grace and him coming to us. That is the story of the Bible. But righteous living is the result of being saved by Jesus. It is evidence of a life transformed by Christ. That is the strong foundation Jesus describes for the wise builder. While on the other hand, those who built their house on no foundation their houses will inevitably be exposed and cannot ex escape ruin, great ruin and the destruction to come with ultimately the judgment of their souls in an eternity separated from God. You know, Revelation 20 verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, it's a stern warning from Jesus. See, he was telling those sitting there on the mount, and us sitting here today listening, if you think that hearing and saying will make you a good Christian, you are deceiving yourselves. 
Whoever hears the words of Jesus and doesn't do them, doesn't apply them to their life, doesn't live it out, is like the foolish builder who trusts the hard pan rather than laying down a proper and true foundation. It's a heavy-hitting parable from Jesus, one that would make any listener pay attention to their own life and faith response. And perhaps in your reflection and searching, you've found yourself lacking. Perhaps you haven't set a proper foundation because you struggle with obedience to God. Maybe your foundation is weak because you barely find time to properly listen to God, God's word throughout the week. Maybe you have no foundation at all because you've never come to God before. See, while Jesus' parable is a stern warning to not just be sayers or hearers, but be doers, after teaching this parable, a little while later, in his ministry, Jesus would encapsulate this in the most remarkable way because Jesus throughout his ministry had professed with his words that he is God's son, sent here to rescue people from sin. In his ministry, he was a man who always went to God, often going to the Father in prayer and devotion. You know, he was a man who not only knew the word, but he was the very word of God, hearing and knowing what the scriptures had promised, that there would be a saviour one day who would heal the brokenhearted by giving his life for others. And ultimately, he was a man who did what he said he would do, who fulfilled the prophecies by doing exactly what was promised obeying God's will for his life by giving up his own life. See, living faithfully and righteously in a way that we could not, leading to him dying on the cross for sinners and defeating death's hold of it for us, that he was raised to life. Jesus encapsulated so perfectly, not just saying or hearing faithfully, but doing and doing best, the best thing that we could ask for, something that we could never do. So while this parable may have us reflecting deeply, might have us confused, concerned, or convicted. Jesus wants you to know of his grace. He wants you to know of his mercy. Jesus is saying to you, whether you've sinned and you feel like, Lord, I do not obey you, or whether you've never heard of him before, Jesus is simply saying, come to him. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because we know when we come to him, because of what he's done on the cross, that when we come to him, whether we're Christian or not, we are forgiven. So he wants you to come to him and he wants you to hear his words. As Romans 10 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. It's his words that feed us each day, that we have a living hope in him. And lastly, he wants you to live out what you hear. Luke 11 says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Because when you come to him and you hear him and you trust in his promises, you must resolve to act upon it. That is evidence of a life changed by a saviour. So whether you're Christian or not sitting here today, don't tune out like you're on an aeroplane but come to him now. So as I finish, I want to ask you this question. What are you building your life on? Are you building it on soil that will shift and shake when the waters arrive? Or have you built it on a deep 
and sturdy foundation grounded in an authentic faith that is rooted in a life changed inside and out, changed only by the Saviour Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the God who saved us from the depths of sin and darkness. We thank you that in Jesus giving us his life for us, that we can have new life in him. Help us, Lord, be a people who follow you faithfully. Help us to not only be sayers or hearers of our faith, but help us to live out our faith in a way that is pleasing and faithful to you, truly transformed by the Saviour who transformed us from death to life. Help us to come to you daily, to hear from you, to trust in you, to obey you. May we hold fast onto your promises that when our foundation is strong, we need not fear anything. For you are an almighty and faithful God who cannot be shaken. May you be the foundation of our life. Let us have faith, a strong faith in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.